All right. Good morning, everyone. And thank you very much for dialing into the uh, Huawei Future Finance Series. It's a very warm welcome to you wherever you're dialing in for. We're going to get stuck in really, really quickly. Many of you already know Craig Bond. I know many on the call are coming um, and I've worked directly with him in previous organizations, Standard Bank and ABSA and others. But before I get into what we're going to go and talk about and more formally introduce Craig, I just want to hand over to Leandro, our sponsor from Huawei. Would you like to take over? Yeah, thank you. Thanks very much, Colin. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Morning, Craig. My name is um, Leandra Chinia. I'm the head of marketing for the Enterprise Business Group at Huawei in South Africa. I'm based in the um, in the Woodmead offices. Some of you may be familiar with where our offices are here in, in Johannesburg. I'm working from home due to the pandemic, so excuse the hardy does if you may hear them in the in the in the background. You know how the South African landscape is here with um, with these birds. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you guys to the Huawei Future of Finance series. Some of you are aware that we are hosting these sessions on a very regular basis, once a month to be exact. Colin, Mr. Colin Isles from the Innovation Catalyst, he's the founder. Um, he's doing the series in partnership with Huawei. Um, we have some amazing guests. Our first uh, session featured Ms. Monica Strait, and we talked about the future of cryptocurrency, um, a very exciting uh, topic. Our second episode of this series is, is where we find ourselves today, along with um, just about 100 of you on this, on this webinar with us, what traditional banks can learn from neobanks. And we have with us Mr. Craig Bond. Um, I just had a little chat with Mr. Craig before this, and he's uh, all the way from London. So that's the beauty of technology and what this, um, what this pandemic has done is that we're able to have these events, you know, regardless of where everybody is in, in location. Mr. Craig, who's currently the chairman of Envel, you can see that he has um, his nice background there uh, showing us where, where he's from, um, is a highly regarded uh, banker who's had a variety of senior roles, including um, the CEO of Barclays, Africa Retail and Business Banking. And prior to that, he was the CEO of Standard Bank South Africa. So Craig was responsible for a lot of our money. I think he has... Um, he has a good uh, a good understanding of what neo banking is and, and and what traditional banks can actually learn from that. We're very excited to have you. Huawei is very excited to have your knowledge and your input, and I'm sure that you and um, you and Colin are going to do a fantastic job. Back to you, Colin. Thank you very much, uh, Leandra and uh, Craig. Welcome. <laughs> uh, good to be here. Good to be here. Let's start with where you are because that's the story in itself. You're in you're in a prison. I understand. Yeah, I'm, I'm in a quarantine hotel and my view behind my laptop is of uh, a car park in Heathrow's main runway. So um, I'm in day eight. I've had two COVID tests, both negative, and two more days in jail and then I can get out. Well, that's good to hear. Now, and how many minutes are you allowed out of your room? Uh, 20 minutes a day with a security guard. Okay, so that's why we've got your time then, because you obviously must be driving yourself insane there. So uh, if we just go and run on a little bit, it's not going to cause a major problem. Now, I'm only joking. We're going to be running this particular part until 12.30 before handing back on to, uh, to Leander there. Now, a lot of people do know you, Craig, but for those that don't, would you just like to do a little intro? Um, I mean, I call, on, the, on the flyers that we put out, I called you a veteran banker. And I know you didn't like that, but I couldn't think of a better uh, positive term. I hope it might come across the wrong way. Why don't you do a better job of explaining your background than I have? No, I mean, I, I'm a veteran banker, I suppose. I've been around a long time. You know, I started life at Investec as em employee number 40 uh, in the, the corporate banking division. Um, I then moved into project finance, 
was with uh, Nedbank for eight years and started in project finance and ended up running their retail and uh, personal banking division. I then moved to Standard Bank for 13 years, uh, started out running the card business, ended up moving through the branch network, the private bank, to running the African businesses. Uh, and then uh, my last uh, sort of port of call at, at Standard was uh, establishing Standard Bank China uh, in Beijing uh, with their strategic partner, ICBC. I then came back to South Africa and was with ABSA for six years, uh, heading up their retail and business bank. And then when, uh, when I left Barclays and ABSA, my thinking was I wanted to find something that could uh, meet all of the aspirations that I had for what we could do with tech. Uh, and I was looking for something you know, much more purposeful. Got very close to joining uh, two other fintechs, but eventually met Steve LaRue, the founder of, of Envil. Uh, just liked the guy, trusted the guy, and really liked his passion. Uh, you know, he was very purpose-driven. He wants to use technology to help, you know, tens of millions of people to manage their money better and live better lives. I mean, and I couldn't think of a, a better organization to join. Uh, that was two and a half years ago. And, you know, we're now live uh, in the app stores in America. Business is going really, really well, having a lot of fun. And, you know, lots of the team are South Africans. So all of our IT and uh, tech and uh, engineering and data science teams in Cape Town. And then all the compliance and the marketing and the finance and the product people sit in Boston. So yeah, been a very exciting journey and it's been fantastic, you know, taking all the learnings from all those years in banking, uh, traditional banking into this new world of uh, customer-centric challenger banking. So let's dig into Envil because I think it's important for context because, you know, we're trying to understand what the big incumbent banks can learn from these hundreds of challenges. And there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of challenger banks that are out there now. What is Envil's um, sort of purpose. How would you describe Envil? So, you know, the, the founder, Steve LaRue, was very frustrated after the 2008-2009 financial crisis because all banks did was sort of be, start opening up the, the lending taps, providing more credit card credit, providing more vehicle asset credit, providing more home loan credits, and actually didn't do anything to help the consumers. And so, you know, he quite quickly developed a passion to say, let's use new technologies, artificial intelligence, uh, behavioral science to try and build a challenger bank that uh, can do all of that and sort of help you manage your money. Uh, and quite quickly, it became our mantra that we were going to use all these technologies to help you manage your money better so that you could live a better life. And that's everything we do is, is built around that. So in essence, what is Envil? Envil, and, and let's, let's take a hypothetical example. Somebody's salary comes into their Envil account. Our artificial intelligence and our algorithms have looked at all of your behaviors. And then we divide automatically your money up into a daily spending limit. So we give you a guilt-free spending limit every day on the app that you can just spend. We have uh, the equivalent of an overdraft, an emergency fund. Uh, if you run out of money, we then have all your bills in a, a separate envelope. And uh, lastly, we have a vault. We also have the ability, very simply and very quickly, uh, once you've gone through our automated KYC process, to open up to 90 accounts. So literally, I could open an account in your name you know, on my app as a subsidiary to me, but a full account with a branch code with the account number in literally two seconds. So we've made it super simple to, uh, to open an account. We've made it super simple to set yourself goals, to open other accounts. But the core functionality is what we call autopilot. Uh, and you have the option of just treating us as a normal app, like a South African banking app that just does your normal payments and things. 
or you hit our autopilot button. And there we automate everything. And there we take the, the heavy lifting out of managing your money better. So we physically, you know, divide your money up into these four accounts. We help you save. If you don't spend your daily limit, we sweep it into your vault. And we've created quite a lot of friction around getting into the vault. You've got to take a little hammer in there. You've got to break the glass. You've got to tell us why you're taking the money out of the vault. It, it's, you know, there's real friction. And the result of that is we're finding, you know, lots of our early users uh, you know, I'm coming back to saying, wow, this is the first time in my life I'm actually saving every month and it's painless because I don't even notice it going off my account. So that's the core of it. Uh, there's a lot more to it. We have a humor setting. We've tried to lighten it a little bit from normal banking apps. So our, our messages to you can come in three senses of humor from, you know, pretty tame to, you know, pretty rough. Um, and we're finding that that's, that's really helped people sort of, uh, you know, engage with the app. So, Let's put it in um, numbers. Some of the uh, ones that we've chatted about previously, you just mentioned, are, are quite, I think, they're quite interesting, I suppose. Yeah. A couple of seconds to KYC. Yeah. Most uh, incumbents were just, uh, was this, this is Dream World. Yep. You've been around for two years. And how many customers would you say that you've got now? So it's, we started the business just over two years ago, but we've literally been in the App Store since January. Uh, so we've, this is, you know, four months into it. We've had, uh, you know, to give you the, the, the numbers, we've had about uh, 15,000 downloads of the app, uh, and that's converted into just over 7,000 active users, fully KYC active users. So, you know, uh, when we kicked off, we, we had a pilot uh, in uh, November, December with 200 users, and then quite quickly, uh, we started getting, you know, uh, this sort of really exponential growth. So we're sitting just over 7,000 users at the moment. Um, We've actually, you know, used the last four months as a real beta. Uh, so we, we have a very engaged, we have a thousand customers uh, and users who engage us on Reddit, on Discord, via the social media chats on our own community, and they're helping us build the app. So we literally take all this feedback from all these users, we triage it, and then we put it into place. And in fact, as we're sitting here, we've got a huge release going. This is our 19th release since January. So, you know, we go into the App Store you know, very regularly. We take customer needs, we build it, we test it, and we put it into the app store. So that's kind of where we are. Our, our, our objective is, is sort of by the middle of the year to get to 10,000 active users and then to switch on our marketing. So we, you know, a lot of this has been organic growth, a little bit of test marketing, but, you know, we really are refining the product, making sure the users really like what we've got, uh, engaging very actively in, 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 on the social media and with these communities and you know, giving them what they want. Um, and then you know, from the middle of the year, we'll, we'll pull the trigger on, on big marketing spend and hopefully stop that incremental growth that we, we really need uh, for the next, uh, next year. So essentially your cost of customer acquisition at the moment is basically zero. Yeah, you know, I think we fully costed it at around $20 per customer. Uh, when we look at our big competitors in the States, they're around 80. So you're absolutely right. I mean, we're very low. Our anticipation on our budgets is that, you know, the bigger we get, the more expensive it's going to be to get customers. Um, so we, we don't think we're going to stay at that low cost of acquisition forever, but it's a nice place to be at the moment. You know, it, it is a good place to be. So let's go back um, to the start when you got involved. I mean, that timeline is just insane. Many of the people in the, uh, on the call here, I mean, certainly my experience working in banks, I've, I've never seen a project. I mean, this is a whole bank that's been delivered in, in two years, effectively. Yeah, and and to to think about that, 
um, with a traditional hat, it's just it's just not feasible. Yeah, it's, it's sometimes difficult to make fairly minor changes because of the technical debt a lot of organisations have got. How have you been able to do so much in such a short space of time? I mean, you, you must have just funded this through the hill. This must be hundreds of millions going into this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what people would think. So I think the, the short answer is no, it's cost us very little, you know, literally uh, less than $5 million to build an entire bank, uh, you know, with very strong uh, compliance controls, fantastic systems infrastructure, and you know, real room for growth to the millions of customers. So you know, that for me is the most astounding. You know, those kind of budgets within the big banks that I've worked for would have uh, delivered very little and would have taken years to deliver something. You know, we've been able with a small team starting out with five or six people, uh, now sitting at twenty-four, uh, have been able to build and run you know a full bank with a customer service team, with a full compliance team, you know, with uh, strong finance, you know, marketing. Uh, and, and of course, lots of uh, data scientists and uh, a very strong front-end, back-end software engineering team. So, you know, how did it all happen and, and why, why is it that uh, neobanks are able to do this? Well, I think, first of all, it's got a lot to do with the culture of these organizations. You look at uh, the founders of, of Envil, they're two super purpose-driven individuals. They met while they were studying at Harvard. They sort of quantified this idea quite quickly got early funding from MIT, which, you know, is pretty cool. So MIT put the original funding in to build out the concept. That's kind of at the point when I met them. Steve and I were both guest speakers at a conference in London, and I really liked what he had to say, and you know, he liked what I had to say, and, you know, that was the beginning of, of how I got involved. But I think the reality is um, the fact that you have, you know, very flat structures, no politics, the, you know, you can make all the decisions instantly allows you to do a lot. I think the second thing is technology has come such a long way now that, you know, we're not building off old mainframes. We're not integrating into old mainframes. Everything's state-of-the-art in the cloud. And so, you know, just executing with the best technology that's available is so much easier than it is and would be for, for a big bank. And I think that's why we've been able to do what we've been able to do. I think the other thing, and it's it's the thing that struck me the most, you know, particularly with the previous roles I had at Barclays and Epson Standard, in the leadership of those banks, you were a million miles from the customer. You 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 thought you understood it, and you got lots of market research reports, and you got lots of data points, but you know, none of those people were sitting on call centers listening to customer complaints. So we were a million miles away, pushing product, chasing budgets, trying to make our quarterly targets. Whereas in the world of fintech. It's all about engaging customers. I mean, every single one of our team talks to customers all the time. You know, for a period earlier this year, I was head of attrition. So any customer that wanted to close their accounts came through to me and I've personally responded to them and, you know, had a very good uh, response rate that they, they said, okay, well, then I'll stay with you if that's what you guys are planning. But, you know, it put me in the firing line front and center. Wow, you know, this isn't a great feature we've got. We haven't got those kind of features. So I think what's happened in the big banks is there just so many layers, so many silos, and so much old technology. It's literally culturally impossible to deliver what these, these new neobanks or challenger banks are able to do today. Let's not say that just yet, because we don't want to depress people at this moment <laughs> in time. We'll, we'll get to there in a minute about what the uh, large banks can actually do. But I just wanted yes. to go back to some of the points, uh, which I find were fascinating. So there's two guys that have met at uh, university, at, uh, you say Stanford? At Harvard. At Harvard, yeah. at Harvard sorry. Okay, yeah. they've managed to go and get funding for MIT there. So they've obviously got no banking experience. No. 
when you, you know, go and look at the people that are coming in, did you have people coming in with banking experience? Because banking yeah. is complicated and you, you need to have experts with 20 years of history and experience to do these types of things. So, so yes and no. I think one of the strengths of these fintechs and these neobanks is that in most cases, they're not being founded by bankers. So there's no legacy, there's no history, uh, there's no you know preconceived ideas. They really are just worried about the customer outcomes and trying to solve customer pain points. But you're absolutely right. You do need, uh, you know, you do need bankers. You do need people who understand payments. You do need people who understand uh, compliance and the regulatory issues. And you do need people who understand risk. And so our first layer of hires were all really techies, uh, strong uh, software engineering core, strong design core, because design is at the heart of what these banks do really well. Uh, and then uh, the second phase was hiring strong finance, strong risk, Strong compliance uh, and, and you know and, and building out some bankers around the visionaries that sit in the centre. Isn't it risky hiring engineers and, and techies first, and then getting the compliance guys in second? Do you find uh, that things have been built which are really just not going to work? No, I mean you know the, the the lag between hiring the engineers and and hiring the compliance guys wasn't long, but I think the reality is the concept you know in its infancy was fairly clear. You know, we wanted to build an envelope system that was based on what our grandparents used to do. You know, they used to take a bit of money and put one envelope for the groceries, one for the school fees, one for the rainy day fund. And, and you know, Steve's whole concept was let's take that envelope system and automate it using AI and technology. So that was the build initially. The second phase was how do we make this regulatory compliance? How do we make sure that the right fraud checks, the right KYC uh, mechanisms are in place? And the beauty about the world we live in today is you don't have to build it all yourself. So we've partnered with you know five or six amazing tech companies to provide our onboarding process. So you know we we haven't just done it by ourselves. We've built you know a, a character recognition piece in partnership with someone else, a tracking of the cell phone piece with someone else, a fraud prevention piece with someone else, checking uh, the databases that there aren't any bad actors or or bad guys coming into our base with another with another company. But from a customer perspective, they come into our app and our record is 52 seconds, fully KYC'd, fully regulatory compliant, without having to, to provide a single document to us, you know, all done digitally. And obviously we've built incredible pathways into databases so that we automate that stuff. So that's all done and it's only possible in this this new age because there's so many people focusing on pieces of this fintech puzzle that you can you know pull together uh, through your app and and really make something quite special uh, from a customer perspective. Uh, what about core banking systems? Did you go and buy an off-the-shelf core banking system to to sit behind the scenes of the app? No, so I mean we, we did two things. You know, when Steve and I first started chatting two and a half years ago, you know, the discussions that we were having is you know, do we build a core banking platform and do we need a banking license? And the answer we got to very quickly was no. Uh, Steve had had lots of discussions with lots of, you know, banking as a service providers. He'd been exploring who we wanted to partner with from a deposit taking perspective and who we wanted to partner with from a banking license perspective. So, you know, we've in essence got a core banking system that uh, we process everything through. We've got a banking partner that is our regulatory compliant banking partner that feeds everything to the regulator. And what do we own? We own everything that sits on top of that. So we own the customer experience, all the products, all the services, and obviously we handle the customer queries, the risk and the monitoring processes. You know, 
And we just found that the value we could add from a customer perspective wasn't having a big engine that processes debits and credits. That actually is not where the added value is. And you know, spending a, a fortune getting a banking license actually gave, had no merits in, in the model. You know, we work very closely with uh, our, our banking partner. They sign off all of our compliance stuff. They do regular checks on us. They do annual audits. Even our marketing has to be signed off by them. You know, at the end of the day, they're the bank of record. But you know, if you choose your partners well, it allows you to focus on the really important stuff, which is you know, how do you provide these services to your customers? So we decided, you know, don't build or buy a, a core banking system, and don't uh, you know, acquire or buy a, a banking license. That's interesting. Did you find it difficult to get banking partners? So uh, let's go back a step before that, though. Can neobanks exist without large banks as their supporting partners? Um, do you see that? And the way that you've chosen to go, did you find it easy to find you know, a large banking partner? In some ways, it feels like they're, they're kind of inviting, supporting you to be successful to go and eat into their lunch eventually. Well, you know, if we look at the market we operate in at the moment, which is just the U.S., You've got a, a challenger bank like Chime, which, you know, in, in a very short pace of time has got more active customers than Cat, Capital One or any of the major regional, super regionals in America. And, you know, they're a very simple digital bank that, you know, offers great service uh, through a very good app. But, you know, frankly, nothing mind-blowing. And yet they've got, you know, massive market cap, you know, more than 10 million customers. And they've done this all in a very short period of time. And they took exactly the same route that we did. They didn't build a core banking system. They didn't get a banking license. However, what we are seeing in, in America and in some of the European markets, there gets a point where you need a balance sheet. We at the moment don't do lending. We are very much a transactional banking service. Once you get into lending and you have to get into lending, um, you need a balance sheet. And that means you either need to partner with a big bank, which has its own pros and cons, or you have to acquire a banking license or a banking charter in, in the US. And so what we are seeing is the, is the guys that have been in this for five or 10 years, those early neobanks are all starting to apply for, for banking charters or buying small banks and incorporating them into themselves. And my sense is we will be no different. There will come a point where we need to have a big balance sheet. We need our own balance sheet. We don't want to share our revenue streams with too many partners. And we will then have to acquire or apply for a banking license. Well, one more question for me, and then we'll go and, and pick up on some of the ones that are, are coming through. When I think about your previous role, you're in lots of meetings and lots of exco's, yeah. chatting with board members, going off to some lovely restaurants, yeah. um, not actually getting your hands dirty, in all honesty, on many things. You've clearly brought this into Envil. Your, your main role is sort of statesman and to bring credibility to what they're doing. Am I right? Yeah, I think so. You know, I, I think um, we're very lucky. We've got an amazing group of individuals who are, you know, as I say, super purpose-driven. They're on a mission. They literally are like zealots. They believe what we do. They work crazy hours. And, you know, and Steve in particular, you know, is that sort of North Star that keeps everybody focused. That This is what we're trying to do. I mean, uh, like all founders, you know, he is an ideas generator, which is just Unbelievable. He's constantly got new ideas. How are we going to disrupt this? How are we going to change that? And part of the role that I play, I think, as his, as his partner in this, in this business is kind of just, you know, trying to make sure that we stay within sufficient sort of guidelines that we actually deliver what we promise and 
prioritize all of these wonderful ideas that he's got. So I'm finding that, you know, 30 years of experience in banking, coupled with this amazing sort of idea generation from these young founders, is a very good combination. As long as you can, you know, leave your, your ego simple. Um, you know, there isn't room in these these sort of companies for, you know, uh, credit taking and bravado and, you know, trying to be one step above anyone else. And so, you know, very much part of the culture that Steve and I are trying to create here is a totally flat structure. Um, the entire company gets together every Tuesday on Zoom, you know, from the most junior person to the most senior. We have no rank. We work together. We do lots and lots of mini hackathons. We've got a problem. We get everybody on the Zoom call. We work it out. The engineers go back. The designers go back. The marketers go back. And we execute. So, you know, it's... it's what, what I'm it's, asking, uh, though, for you know, Craig, is you're, you're not having to get your hands dirty. Let's take payments, for example. Yeah, listen, I think, you know, the, the reality with a startup, you get your hands dirty. Yeah, everybody gets yeah. their hands dirty. You know? So, you know, I wasn't exaggerating, you know, taking every, every, every customer email that, that uh, wanted to cancel an account with us, you know, that's about as dirty as you can get your hands because these are angry clients who've been pissed off with your service and, you know, are, are wanting you to close their accounts. So I think, you know, everybody in the company is getting their hands dirty. There just, just isn't room. So from writing the pitch book to talking to investors to, you know, making sure I'm on the management call every day, uh, you know, onwards, uh, that, that's the... That's the NHS phoning to tell me that I'm okay. Can I just uh, let, just let it ring? Um, so I, I think the reality is, uh, no, they're probably not going to go. Give me a second. So if you join the call late, just so you know what Craig's doing there, he's uh, stuck in a hotel in London on the uh, 10-day quarantine. And the process basically is you apply, you go in, you get no choice. You might get a one-star, you might get a five-star. I think it's £170 a night you've got to do a test on day two a test i think it's on day eight and you get a daily call from the nhs and others to check that you're healthy to check that you're in your room and as you were saying check that you're not suicidal because it's a bit like a prison so so the first question that you get asked every morning is uh, how are you feeling and how's your mental health so you gotta love it you gotta love it um sorry so, yeah, so you that. mentioned right. you mentioned about the um you know the, the staff i think that's awesome there's a couple of banks out there i know who are successful because their c-suite are basically mystery shopping and getting right into the front line and, and dealing with customers so that's great but you were telling me earlier that you you didn't realize payment processing is so complicated and how much work you had to do to actually truly understand it yeah and, and you know and, and and you know we take a lot for granted in south africa we've got a fairly sophisticated eft system you know, you go into your app and you can load a beneficiary, you can pay them very quickly, stuff works. Uh, America doesn't have that. Um, it's got a system called ACH so to send money between me to you or to pay a beneficiary or to pay a utility bill can take between three and seven days. That's just the way it works. So you think about Amazon and you think about all of these things and you think, but it's so sophisticated. The banking system is not. It's very clunky. Uh, it's, it's, you know, and it, it comes out of the legacy of 50 states having 50 different sets of regulation, which literally is taking a long time to unwind. So, you know, uh, everything that we do is getting into the detail, trying to understand, you know, how do we take this three to five day transfer process, which is called ACH, American Clearinghouse, from five days down to one day? You know, how do we use blockchain to send money between me and you instantly and for free, perhaps using crypto, you know, how do we do that stuff? So for me, it's been a, a fantastic experience. You know, I was in payments early in my career 
um, you know, and as you move up the ranks, you get further and further from the detail. You can't avoid the detail in a startup. You, you, you know, everybody's in it from the coders right through to the marketing team, right through to the finance director. And you're a, you're a jack of all, you know, so master of none. Uh, you literally, you know, do everything. So, you know, I spent last night uh, transcribing the minutes of the last board meeting. You know, there is no, uh, there are no secretaries. There's no board secretary. Uh, you know, I'm the chairman. I must write the minutes, you know. So I spent, you know, three hours watching a Zoom video of the last board meeting and transcribing the minutes. That's life. And, and I must tell you, it's, it's, it's very, very refreshing. It, it kind of, that you, you know about everything that's going on in this business uh, and, and you can have an influence on everything that's happening. All right, let's let's go through uh, some of these uh, questions here. So, um, Enver is not in the South African store, um, no. I guess for obvious reasons. It's US only. But you have plans. A couple of questions on that to either go into South Africa or Europe. Yeah, I think uh, we've been approached by three big banks: one in Canada, one in South Africa, and one in Australia to do some kind of license deal, uh, so that you know we could bring Envil here in partnership with with the big banks. And that's really interesting to us, but it's 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 not something that's on our, our short-term horizon. Our view is, you know, we've got a, a good few years ahead of us to establish ourselves, get critical mass, get a few million customers in America. And once you've got that big capital base and that big revenue set of revenue streams, you can then expand into other markets. Our vision is obviously to take the Envil concept global. And, you know, we would look at all sorts of markets uh, where we see opportunities uh, where other neobanks actually aren't filling the gap that we are, we think. Yeah. Good one here from uh, Christopher Emmelman. How do you balance encouraging users to save while your fees are made on the spend interchange with Visa? You know, if you're encouraging people not to transact and, and to save, it's quite difficult to make money out of that. So, I mean, that's one of the challenges for neobanks because you don't have a generally a lending platform for your first couple of years. So there's no, uh, not much interest uh, revenue coming in. So, so the reality is most of our early revenue comes from, from interchange. So from a customer's perspective, we've built an offering where there are virtually zero costs to the customer. Um, you know, the, 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 there's no minimum balances, there are no fees, there's no hidden fees, there are no funnies. Most of our revenue comes from interchange. And so, you know, we, what we're trying to do is get people to put all of their spend through our card. So we earn, you know, the interchange revenue. But that doesn't change the philosophy that our primary objective is to get them to save. And so, you know, uh, the, the whole construct and the way we use the algorithm is to actually put money away into the vaults, more and more into the vaults and into the, the specific uh, goals that people have set themselves. So I set myself a goal just on the app a few months ago uh, to, to take my wife away for a long weekend. And it was interesting the other day, you know, little flag popped up, you've met your goal. You know, um, so, you know, that's how it works. The reality with neobanks is you have to find other revenue streams. So, you know, we've got seven or eight new products coming, which do have fees attached to them. They're all voluntary. If you want them, uh, you know, you pay the fee. If you don't, you don't. We also found in America, users and consumers are prepared to pay for expedited services. So if you can take my deposit from a five-day deposit down to a same-day deposit, I'm happy to pay 85 cents for that or a dollar for that. Uh, and so, you know, everything we're trying to do is expedite our services and then come up with added value services where there are other revenue streams. Are you starting to accept uh, some of the cryptos, particularly the ones that are aligned to the dollar, so the yeah. stable coins that are out there? 
And, yeah, and so, does that also not eat into your margins as well? Because the whole point of these is these are meant to be uh, fairly frictionless and cheaper ways to go and transact. Yeah. So I think the reality is um, we think that whether you like it or not, crypto is here to stay. Uh, you know, I'm not a specialist on, on, on the various types of crypto. You know, I haven't had a lot to do with it. But we do think the whole blockchain architecture, the fact that very securely, very cheaply and instantly with a great order trail, I can send money to you is a great starting point. And so we're building an infrastructure. We call it our, our crypto on-ramp and off-ramp where you can take US dollars on the Envil app, put it into stablecoin. We're choosing USDC. Um, and then in turn, it's up to you whether you want to take uh, our stablecoin from, from our virtual wallets and buy crypto. We are going to limit the, the acquisition of crypto. I mean, we're a mass market bank. We're not uh, an affluent bank. So we are going to limit people's crypto. We're going to have a, a health warning that this is risky, et cetera. And, you know, we're going to dis disincentivize people if we think you're making a bad decision. If you can't really afford to be buying Bitcoin or Ethereum, we're going to, in our app, say that to you. But we're going to give you the option to, to start learning. Equally, it's very intimidating for people often to buy shares. So, you know, we're building a function that when you're in a store, so let's say you're in a, a Starbucks buying a coffee, we'll give you the option to top up your transaction from $3.20 to $4, and we'll buy you a fractional share in Starbucks. The same when you're in uh, the Apple store, the Nike store, any, any listed store. And, and slowly, you'll have a, 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 an envelope in our app, which will show you what your portfolio looks like and how it's performing on the stock market and ease people into it. The second phase is we'll then allow you to start buying stock on, uh, on, you know, on, the, uh, uh, on the stock exchange. Jeez, and I've got them locking on my door. So let me just go and see what's happening. Sorry, guys, this is crazy. That's what happens when you're stuck in a uh, hotel prison in London. But what's your view on the, on the data side of things? Are you, are you seeing an area there where you can actually generate revenue from providing data to your customers or going the yeah. complete reverse way and agreeing with mobile operators that data is free when they're using Envil? So, I mean, we regard ourselves first and foremost as a tech company and secondly as a data company. Those are our two primary things. We don't really see ourselves as a bank. The fact is that we just provide banking services. So data is absolutely crucial to us. Uh, you know, one of our founding principles is we are never going to sell our customers' data to third parties. So we may use our customers' data to advise them. So, for example, and I'm going to use a silly example, but, you know, we've got someone that drinks four Starbucks a day and he could be across the road at another coffee shop buying, you know, saving himself $4 a day because the coffee's much cheaper. We may in time say to him, by the way, we can save you $4 a day, which over the 200 days that you work is $800. Why don't you try the coffee across the road? We may do that kind of stuff, but we're never going to sell that data. That, you know, so that's the first thing. Uh, you know, our, our rationale is to use your data to help you. So, for example, some of the services that we're going to put in place when our, our AI picks up that you booked a, a long-haul flight, you're flying to Mauritius on holiday, we will automatically prompt you, do you want seven days of travel cover? Uh, it's a dollar a day. It covers your hotel, your luggage, your flights, fully comprehensive, click yes or no. And it will be done at the cheapest rate that we can find in the market. And that's the beauty of you know, not having to produce these products ourselves. Those are the kind of services that we're going to use data for. So, you know, data is quite sacrosanct to us. Uh, some of our most senior hires are, are data scientists uh, and data engineers, the guys that create the lake and make sure that our interface with Amazon Web Services works really well. But we're not going to ever use data as a revenue source, we don't think. 
but we're going to use it as, as an added value to customers to give them better advice. And in turn, that will generate revenue for us. Let's go back to where we started about what the um, the incumbents can learn from this. And um, perhaps the easiest way to do that is, is to see it through your lens. Mm. If you were, which I very much doubt you will, to go back into a senior CEO role in an incumbent bank in South Africa or elsewhere, having now had this journey for the last two or three years, what do you think you'd do differently to perhaps what you were attempting to do you know, five or six years ago when you were in the senior hot speeds? So, Colin, maybe just to answer that question about why the big banks aren't able to do the stuff that we do and, and the neobanks are doing, you know, it's largely cultural. You know, if I look at sort of the banks that I work for, unlimited budgets, incredibly talented people, amazing sort of infrastructure, and you had lots of authority to do lots of stuff. And yet somehow you were never able to deliver quite what you what you wanted to deliver in time, on budget. And, and you know, a lot of these projects, you know, just never materialized just because of very strong cultural issues. And what are they? First of all, silos. There are lots of silos. So, you know, your IT, your ops, your products, your business are often in very different silos. So even though they all sit on committees together, their priorities are very different. So that I find super frustrating. There's also a, a sort of a real anti-risk layer in organizations, and it's quite subliminal. But why take this risk? We, we're doing pretty well. We've got millions of customers. We're very profitable. Jeez, you know, why go and spend, you know, 10, 20 million building something which is risky. And so, you know, I, I was quite intrigued to see, you know, despite hiring the very best talent in the world, we brought amazing people in from around the world who, by the way, having left those organizations, have gone back overseas and built amazing businesses. We were just never able to culturally get it right because there were just too many blockers. Uh, you know, uh, at, at the worst case, you had the passage terrorists who just, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to push back on any kind of innovation that was disrupting the current model. And on the best case, you would have got well-intended people who didn't quite believe in this world of digital. My sense is, you know, COVID has changed all of that. I think, you know, the world has become instantly digital over the last 18 months. And so I think, you know, stepping into one of those answers, those organizations to ask your question, I would be a lot braver. Uh, you know, I would drive this stuff a lot harder and probably, you know, need to move a lot more people out of the organization. Those, those blockers that sit in organization just below the, the radar and don't want this stuff to happen are, are the people that I think, uh, you know, transformational organizations will have to oust because there are a lot of them, you know, and there are a million motivations. Some of them are well-intended, you know, some of them are, you know, just unfounded. But I think the reality is, you know, with the best intent in the world, Unless you've got a CEO of a big organization who's personally driving this stuff, it's very, very difficult in these legacy organizations to actually do what the neobanks are able to do so quickly. Hold this up. I don't know if this is going to work, but I'll hold it up. This is my exponential curve. Yep. And that's, to me, that's, that's envelope. Yep. Because you start small. Yep. And you're experimenting, you iterate, and you go and uh, put out the request to the public, and you've got 200 first early adopters, 200. Yep. And then you go and iterate some more, and you go and use Discord or other social media chat channels to go and get information back. Yep. You know, And it's the same every time we talk to uh, fintechs or any startup, really, that's, that knows their stuff. You always see this incremental but continual innovation on a daily basis, building and building. And so you go and set that point where you start to actually go and 
and see that exponential growth and you hit the knee of the curve and you know you look back and everyone says yeah overnight success but it was eight years of work yeah. my, my sense in the big banks is that they don't apply that approach they sit there with a scoping document that says let's solve the world and spend three hours as building it and then spend lots of money and it's three or four years and then you try to release it and oh it doesn't work yeah right? Totally, totally different models. Is, is that your sense as well now that you've seen totally. both sides? Totally, totally. So, you know, I think that the big banks, because they've got big budgets and these millions of customers, are always trying to build the Rolls Royce. The startup is trying to incrementally improve the customer experience, and they're fundamentally different. So the fact that we've done, you know, as of today, 19 new releases into the App Store since January, can you imagine that in a big bank, that they're doing these sort of literally bi-weekly uh, changes to their app, adding new features, changing user experience, uh, you know, big, and, and it's all driven by customers. So, you know, we've got a super user group, uh, including one of uh, Google's very, very senior designers, who basically are saying to us, for example, our first version had lots of emojis in it, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, he came back to us and said, this is very cool for an 18-year-old. But, you know, I'm, I, I don't like all these emojis. It just makes me feel like you're not serious, you're not looking after my money. And so guess what? You know, we went out to our, our thousand super users and said, you know, how do you feel about the emojis? And, you know, 90% said, hey, too many emojis. Take the emojis out. We don't need emojis. We like the app. You know, so, you know, guess what? You sort of re-engineer the whole front end. There's a little bit of back-end development because we built some stuff in there. And, you know, we followed what they want. In, in a big bank, that would, that, that, that would never, ever surface, I don't think, you know, because that level of day-to-day -day feedback just isn't happening. It's going through big marketing research companies. It's in deep reports which are probably emailed out to a big audience, never really read properly, never executed. In, in the world we live in, you know, if, if we screw up and we don't meet these needs, the numbers just drop off and you'll suddenly go from, you know, very low levels of attrition, you'll suddenly find you've got 10, 15, 20% of attrition because people are just fed up. They, they've got so much choice in this new world that if you don't get it right and you don't listen to them, you get ousted. And it's one of the reasons I think, you know, in America, the big banks are losing tens of millions of customers to, to challenger banks like ourselves. Now, we, we're a baby. We've only been, been around in the market for four months, actually. But, you know, you look at the chimes and you look at many of the successful neobanks in America, they are stealing tens of millions of clients from big banks. And simply because the experience is better and they feel that someone's listening to them and answering, you know, their needs. Yeah, I don't want to send anyone the call, but Jamie Dimon came out earlier in the year and he said, banks should be scared shitless about the fintechs and the neobanks. Yeah. And I'm assuming that you're uh, you're validating what he's saying from what you've seen. A hundred percent. You know, I mean, you know, I can just see BBVA, which is one of the world's sort of most innovative digital banks, uh, recently closed down a bank in America called uh, Simple. Yeah. Uh, Simple was one of the first neo banks. It has got a you know incredibly loyal following. It did some amazing stuff. Its founders then sold it to BBVA, and guess what happened? It got pulled into this, the corporate world. There were project management meetings and governance meetings and budget meetings. And the whole ethos of that bank, because we're interviewing lots of those clients and many of their ex-users are on our super users now, are telling us, you know, this whole thing changed. The ethos in the company changed from being innovative and caring to being budget-driven and project-driven. And so guess what happened? You know, you were suddenly being uh, sort of governed by a huge bank and prioritized a long way down the IT priority list when it was a startup. They just did, did everything that the customers needed them to. 
So I, I really do think the big banks have got, have got to watch out. And I think the challenge is many of the big banks are starting to acquire neobanks. And, you know, there are a couple of success stories. Some of our ex-colleagues, Colin, uh, as you know, Ashley Vizi and uh, Craig Corti went to Canada. Ashley Vizi is the CIO of the biggest bank in Canada. And Craig Corti is the chief digital officer of Tangerine, their challenger bank. And that works brilliantly. They've got millions of customers in their challenger bank. But what they've done is they've left them alone. So they run it as a totally separate business. They're still all colleagues, but they keep it totally separate. There are many other examples where banks have acquired, you know, a big interest or controlling interest in these, in these fintechs, try to fit them into their retail strategy, and it's the kiss of death, as it was with Simple Bank in the States. So, you know, we've been a, a beneficiary of, you know, several thousand uh, Simple customers, and many of them are our super users now, helping us build the features that they always thought that uh, uh, Simple was going to build for them. But you can just see that, you know, more and more, this lack of customer centricity and actually solving real customer pain points and the cost, because the beauty is our infrastructure and the cost it's cost us to build this bank is a rounding error for the big banks. So we can do everything for free. We don't need big revenue streams to pay our salaries and keep our costs going. The big banks do. They've got tens of thousands of staff. They've still largely got big branch networks. They've got huge IT teams, thousands of people sitting managing mainframes and infrastructure. We have none of that. And, you know, we're a tiny shop. We've literally 14 uh, 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 software and IT engineers sitting in Cape Town, uh, 10 bankers sitting in Boston. That's our whole business today, you know, and it'll grow. And you know. so, so you said that when, you, you know, in this imaginary world, when you go back in and, and take on a senior role in, in one of the large banks, you know, we've got to get this cultural transformation. Maybe we've got to get rid of a few levels, yeah. try to minimize a bit of bureaucracy. Would you also want to go and start spinning up your own sort of skunk works? This is very Apple. You know, Apple, you don't hear much about them. Bang, with the Apple cards come out, the watches come out. They take small groups of people, chuck them miles away from head office and the mothership, yeah. give them some budget, keep it totally under the radar, and they just let them play. Yep. And then when something good comes up, then it's quite often awesome. We don't hear about the 99% of stuff that they do, which is rubbish, and they throw it away. Yeah. Would that be a sensible strategy for, for some of the larger banks to actually put a lot more you know, thought into trying to go and set up those type of skunk works? Yeah, I think it would. And I mean, I would take it one step further. You know, it, it needs to be more than a skunk works. You need to have you know, a very clear mission that we are going to disrupt ourselves. You know, if you look at Tangerine and, and Scotiabank in Canada, the, there was a very conscious decision by the board and very, very brave, I think, that we're going to set up a challenger bank that's actually going to you know, take our customers potentially, and it's going to disrupt us, um, and it's going to earn less revenue because their revenue streams are and their fees are much lower than our core bank. The reality is it's had a, a positive benefit across the whole organization because it's, it's attracted a whole lot of customers that would never have banked with Scotiabank was seen as too conservative. It's up the digital game in Scotiabank itself, so the whole culture in that bank is, well, geez, look what Tangerine's doing. We better do that as well. And so I think the reality is if I, was, if I was to go back into a big bank, I would consciously hire the best people that we could find, give them big budgets, give them big mandates, minimize the governance and, and, and involvement, and let them go and build a challenger bank to disrupt your own bank. You know, in a okay, let's, just, let's just challenge that one then, Craig, because big budgets, big mandates, this is the, the polar opposites of what you've done at Envil. 
And if we, you know, and, I'm, and I suppose what I'm saying there is if we look at a lot of startups, yes, eventually you're going to have some really big budgets and huge amounts of funding because the grassroots are there. But time and again, you look at these startups over those first two or three years, they're incredibly tight, incredibly lean, incredibly focused. And the worst thing you could do is to give them a big budget because they wouldn't know how to spend it and they'd get so many crazy ideas and suddenly try to do everything and in the end do everything relatively badly. You're absolutely right. So let, let me let me just put that in perspective. Big budgets is is budgets to do the job. So you know we were able to build an entire bank for you know about four million dollars, uh, and that included you know all our operating costs, everything. So my sense is you know you need to have that kind of money in mind if you're going to do this. You can't just set up a skunkworks like many banks have done. You know at APSA we had the Cowboys and Aliens team. Fantastic team doing fantastic work, but very tight budgets, you know, a kind of very limited mandate, tinkering on the fringes, a little bit of innovation, working with the Risers team, you know, the sort of incubator. But it wasn't mainstream. It wasn't super supported. I'm not sure that even all the executives fully understand what they did or ever visited their, their, their site. You need to be able to achieve that fine balance between, you know, hiring the right team of innovators giving them the right mandate, giving them enough money. And I, and I agree with you entirely. Part of the reason we've been so successful is we have sleepless nights about the money. You know, there are there is no largesse in our organization. We watch every cent, you know, uh, literally every cent uh, every day, you know. So, and that was something but I never big, did in my entire banking career. Vision, big vision, huge support, tight, you know, quarterly yep. rolling budgets and, you know, yep. uh, test lines on that. You, no. uh, sorry to interrupt there. It's just we're, we've only got six or so minutes left. Yep. But I want to also just add one last thing. Because you mentioned it right at the start when you uh, had those first relationships um, with the founders. Is it, his name escapes me. Chef, was it? Uh, Steve. Uh, Steve, Steve LaRue, Steve. yeah. Yeah, and you, you mentioned purpose. How important is purpose and how lacking is that in the big banks and financial institutions in general in the incumbent space? Now, listen, I, I think in the big organizations, we, we all pay lip service to, you know, being customer centric. I mean, every document and every business case was always about customer centricity in the big banks. The reality, we were actually driving budgets, market share and cost targets. That, that was the purpose in the big banks. To be successful, you had to, you know, do it on time, on budget and, you know, generate the right kind of market share growth and revenue that you promised. In a fintech, it's totally different. You know, there's an acceptance from our investors that we're not going to make money for a while. So our budget is, are you watching your costs properly and are you growing the base and are you engaging properly? That, that, that's what it's all about. And so for me, when I was looking for a company to join and, you know, there were a couple that I got very close to joining, it was only when I, I, I kind of met Steve and saw how viscerally uh, he felt about this this vision. He genuinely is a guy that gets up every morning wanting to help tens of millions of people manage their money better and live better lives. That's, that's it. And in every interview process, um, we've had some amazing candidates apply for jobs with us. There have been a few that we've said no, because when you got to them, their question was, you know, how am I going to make money out of this? When are we, are we going to list? Are we going to become a unicorn? And that's not the kind of people we want in the organization. Of course, that's an endgame goal. We want to become a big, successful organization. But the reason that everybody is joined in, uh, literally from the software engineers onwards, is because we think we're going to build something really special that's going to help millions of people. That, that's it. So I think purpose is, is fundamental. And I think uh, fintechs are in a very lucky position that their investors 
are putting money in knowing it's going to take several years to, to make a profit. They're not expecting a return on Friday. They're not expecting you to make a quarterly budget. They're expecting you to grow customers, build something special, and eventually you know, uh, give them a, a good return. It quite brings together a couple of questions here, but I want to do it with a um, quote. The battle between every startup and incumbent comes down to whether the startup gets distribution before the incumbent gets innovation. Yep. Who's winning this battle at the moment? So, you know, in most of the markets that I'm looking at, uh, you know, whether that be Europe, Asia or America, I think that the startups are winning the battle. You know, they are they are moving the customers across and more and more of them are moving their main banking relationships. And, you know, we don't believe that we'll ever have everyone's main bank relationship. But what is starting to happen is that you know millions of people are moving across to this new form of banking. And I'm not sure that the big banks are matching the levels of innovation. And don't get me wrong, you know, I look at even some of our banks in South Africa, they've got some really great digital services. You know, I think their apps are fantastic, their product offerings are good. So don't get me wrong. But I don't think that they're they're focused on the customer needs to the extent that uh, these neo banks are. I mean that can't be sustainable, though, because uh, I think, let's, let's have a look, if you ask the question, I'll, I'll uh, call it out. I think it was Raymond Berger. We must see some conversions coming over the next five or ten years here. Yep. Because it's now such a, I mean, there are so many neobanks, so many fintechs, so many players in fintech in general. Hmm. What do you expect is going to happen over, uh, actually, Chris Skinner came up with this one, which I thought was a great question. Are we expecting a lot of consolidation where the incumbents start to go buy some of the neobanks, or could we actually have the complete rust? where an Ember or a Revolut or, you know, N24 actually just becomes so successful, they buy the JP Morgans of the world. To be honest, I think it's going to be a combination of both. There are, there are going to be some successful acquisitions of successful challenger banks and neobanks. They, you know, big banks uh, will decide we're going to go and spend X billion and we're going to go and buy one of these. And, you know, that will happen. And some of them will be successful. Some of them and most of them, I think, will, will fall into the corporate trap and over time, like Simple Bank and BBVA, will sort of lose their magic, lose their allure. The founders will float off once they've, their, their, their buyout periods have gone. And I think you find suddenly you're back into big corporate and five years down the track, it's been integrated into the bank. So I think that will happen. Equally, some of the, the, the neobanks, and, and I, I use Chime, but there are many more Revoluts, uh, are getting so big and so successful that I, you know, and, and by the way, they are already buying mid-sized banks and small banks to get banking licenses. I wouldn't be surprised if a decade out, uh, some of them are the names that we know, you know, and that the cities and the JP Morgans aren't necessarily the biggest banks in the world anymore. I think some of these banks will be. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a combination. It's, it's a very interesting period, but it's the perfect time for this. You know, COVID got the world to accept digital much more than they ever had. So there's much more trust in digital. There's much more acceptance in digital. And more and more, you're speaking to people at the legacy retail banks. And I was a branch banker for a lot of my career. But you're speaking to people who are saying, you know, I've been in a bank branch for, for a year. And the only time I have to go in is, is to do something fairly mundane that they should have had on the app. So I, I do think over time, there are going to be some big winners in the in the challenger bank and neobank space. But equally, I think there will be some success stories of acquisitions by, you know, the big banks. Great. Thank you very much. We've run out of time. Always um, a pleasure, Colin. 
You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts. 